Um, if you remember the movie, almost 20 years ago now, a movie called The Pirates of the Caribbean came out. The bad guy was, was named Captain Barbosa. Remember him with the scraggly beard? Jeffrey Rush played Captain Barbosa. He captains a ship full of criminals, and they're cursed men. They're not just bad guys, but they're all under a curse because at some point in the past, they had stolen some forbidden gold, and the gold cursed them with the result being that they were forever suspended now between life and death. And there's a scene where Captain Barbosa explains the worst part of the curse for him. It's not merely that they were in this place of suspension, but it's the fact that he could uh, remember what certain things were like as a human being, but he could no longer experience them the same way. So he explains, I know the sea breeze is there, but I can never feel it on my face anymore. I know what it is uh, to eat and drink, but I'm never full. No matter what I consume or try to experience, I'm never satisfied. And so for all of the men on this ship, there was this just perpetual feeling of emptiness. Everything was fleeting for them. Now, interestingly, the Bible tells us something very similar, although much more serious. You know, when the Scripture talks about us, human beings, that we are, ever since Genesis chapter 3, we are under a curse. It's the curse of sin and death. And part of this curse is that all of life is ultimately unsatisfying and empty unless and until we find life in relationship with God. All of creation has been subjected to futility. There's meaninglessness everywhere we look except in the person of God. And so what happens to us as human beings, we will consume and consume. We will search for and reach for anything that will promise us a sense of fulfillment, but in the end we find out that we're never really full. Always something's missing. And we find out, if we're honest with ourselves, that, that it's the most essential thing that's not there. Because fullness and wholeness is something only the Lord can give to us. And this is the message that Jesus is going to give us right on the heels of what his most popular, uh, of what was his most popular miracle, and perhaps one of his most famous miracles. We, we saw this last week, how Jesus multiplied bread and fish. He took basically a sack lunch and turned it into a meal that fed 10,000 plus people all that they wanted. And if, if you just think about the sheer size and scope of the miracle, it was the largest miraculous sign that Jesus ever performed. And when the great crowd of people saw it, when they tasted of it, they became convinced that this man, Jesus, is the one who's going to lead us back to prominence as a nation. Israel's finally going to overthrow the rule of the Roman Empire, conquer our enemies. Jesus is the one who's going to do that, and so they plan to take him by force and make him their king to kick off a rebellion. That's what the people wanted in that moment. Well, of course, Jesus knows their hearts, we saw this, and so he withdraws. He runs away and disappears from the people because that's not the kind of kingdom he came to introduce. Then he walks on water, he rejoins his disciples on the boat, and they end up in Capernaum. That's a little recap of last week. Well, the people aren't going to give up that easily. What's their response? Well, this is John chapter 6, verse 22. Watch how John paints this picture now for us. 
Jesus and his disciples have left. Verse 22, the next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So to catch us up, the people in the crowd, they put, they put the pieces together. Somehow Jesus must have crossed over to the other side. We didn't see him. We don't know how he got there. But now they go to Capernaum to look for him. They're desperate to find Jesus. And when they find him, they ask the obvious question, when did you get here? How long have you been here? Y'all, if, if you've been with us as we walk through John, there's been a consistent thread with Jesus. He doesn't really engage in small talk. That wasn't his thing. Usually when Jesus talks to a person, he goes straight to the heart of the issue. And so they ask him a small talky kind of question, and he doesn't answer it. Look at what Jesus says in response, verse 26, straight to the heart. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. You're seeking me, Jesus says, not because you uh, are here to worship me, not because you saw the sign and are responding to who I really am. You're seeking me because you enjoy being fed. You don't understand the purpose of the miracle, a sign that's pointing to my grace and my purpose to save. You like having your stomach filled. That's why you're here. And Jesus knows their hearts, of course, so he knows this to be true. He's not throwing an accusation out. He knows why they've come. And so, y'all, if you think about the implication, what the crowd has done, they've made a great effort to come and find him. But then Jesus stops them in their tracks, and he tells them the truth about their own hearts. And I want you to think about the implication of this. The crowd has come all the way to Capernaum not to worship him, not to put their trust in Jesus, but to see what else he might do for them. And so Jesus cuts back across the grain here. He says, don't work for the food which perishes. Meaning, don't make your ultimate pursuit something that is truly temporary and fleeting. Don't spend all your energy seeking after things that spoil with time and with use. Instead, seek after that which endures to eternal life. Make eternal life your ultimate pursuit, and that's what the Son of Man has come to give you. See, all Jesus is declaring to the crowd and to you and me that He has not come to offer us merely temporary blessings. Whether that be food for the stomach or political victory over their enemies, whatever it was that they wanted Jesus to give them, that's not his ultimate aim. He came instead to give us the grace for eternal life. And God the Father has set his seal to it, Jesus says. 
that I am the one and only God able to save you from your sins. Now, that's not to say that Jesus does not give us temporary graces and gifts. Every single gift comes from the Father of lights, James tells us. Everything that we enjoy is God's will to give and for us to enjoy. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. We pray that. Jesus told us to pray that. But it's not just the daily bread that we need. Ultimately, Jesus came for so much more. And so he says, don't give yourself to things that spoil only that which endures to eternal life, that which I give to you. Well, okay, the people are trying to put this together. And so they ask a, a, a helpful question. All right, look at verse 28. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Y'all, this is a question we all ask, and we may not ask it in the same language. Here's what they're saying. Tell us what God requires of us. Isn't that what we all want to know? What does God want from me? What does God require of me? What must I do to be accepted? And all of us have this natural assumption, it's something we're born with, that the answer to what God requires of me is some kind of work on my part. Some kind of earning, some kind of achieving. What I have to do in order for God to let me in. That's always our assumption. But Jesus, again, cuts across the grain. He says work, but then he gives us something that's decidedly not work. What God requires of you is not something you can earn. It's to believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God. This is his requirement. Not anything you can produce or manufacture, but simply believing or receiving the one he's given us. Now, y'all, as we read that, and we, golly, we talk about this every Sunday, and I don't ever get tired of it. It's the only good thing I've got to share, that it's all about what Christ has done, not what we do. But when we say it, especially when we say it over and over, it might seem to us that Jesus has made this really easy. I mean, especially if you take the work that we produce with our own hands, if you take that out of the equation, I never have to worry if what I've produced is good enough, because Jesus has done it all. All I've got to do is receive it. He's made it so simple, so easy, right? It would make sense then when we read stories like this that the people would simply receive him and celebrate and we'd move on to the next account. But the human heart doesn't work that way. And so often what would seem easy to us or would sound easy from the mouth of Jesus ends up being the hardest thing in the world for the human heart to actually comprehend and receive. The human heart is a funny thing. Look at how the people respond if you don't believe me. Look at what happens in verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. What? I, sometimes I read the scripture and I think, are these people serious? Are they being serious? It was yesterday that Jesus performed the miracle of the bread and the fish. The food was still digesting in their stomachs. He had just performed the miracle. He had given them all that they wanted. They, they saw it. They tasted of it. 
And yet here they are asking for a sign as if Jesus hasn't done anything for them. How could they be so obtuse? How could they be so backward, so selfish? Well, there's a little clue that they actually give to us. It's in verse 31. We just read it. They start talking about the manna that God once gave to Israel as they traveled through the wilderness. If you read through the book of Exodus, after God rescues Israel from Egypt, the people are now wandering through lands that don't belong to them. They don't have access to crops. They don't have time to plant and then harvest because they're always on the move. And so they need food, and God provides. Miraculously, every morning when they wake up, there's this stuff on the surface of the ground. It's called manna. Manna is actually the Hebrew word for what is it. They couldn't define what it was. They just knew that they could scoop it up and then bake it into cakes, and God would provide food every day for his people. And so what we, we see what the crowd is getting at right here with Jesus. They're hinting pretty hard here. God provided manna every day. Jesus, you fed us yesterday, and it was awesome. But what are you going to do for us today? I mean, if you want us to believe in you, then you've got to keep it coming. You've got to keep providing, like a politician who's got to earn our vote and our allegiance. What are you going to do for me? That's the attitude here that they're bringing to Jesus right on the heels of his great miracle, and yet they're only concerned with what's next. What more can you do for us? How do you think Jesus is going to respond here? Not by making more bread. He's done with that. Look at Jesus' response, verse 32. He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So Jesus is saying to them, something far greater than manna has come, and someone far greater than Moses has come to give it. They didn't have a category for that. Who could be greater than Moses? There is a true bread from heaven, Jesus says, and it's not merely sustaining your physical life. That's not the point at all. It gives eternal life. And not only for the nation of Israel, but gives life to the world, to all the nations. Jesus is trying to expand their horizons far beyond anything they had ever conceived of before. And yet the crowd still doesn't get it. So what do they say? Lord or sir, always give us this bread. If you remember back in chapter 4, Jesus met with a woman outside of a well. And he began to speak to her about living water. And he could offer her living water. She'll never thirst again. And she says, sir... Show me where to find this water so I won't have to come back to the well and continue to draw day after day. See, she didn't understand the spiritual application, and it's the same issue here. They think Jesus is talking about something to eat, something even better than what he gave them the day before, better than the manna, right? Give us this bread. Always give us this bread, right? Give it to us continually, day by day. This is what we want. If you've ever been to Olive Garden... As long as you're sitting at the table, I mean, I guess until they close out and, and force you to leave, you, that bread just keeps on coming. It's awesome. That's kind of what the people are thinking here, right? Verse 35, 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Uh, There are, in John, there are seven I am statements Jesus gives to us. This is the first of them. I am the bread of life. Interestingly enough, back in Exodus, when God comes to Moses at the burning bush and says, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, Moses says, who am I going to tell them has sent me? And God says, I am. Tell them I am has sent you. That is God's self-identification. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's making a divine claim here. And it's an amazing thing. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's more than just a messenger come to deliver a message to us. He's not a middleman that God sent to help us along the path. And specifically, Jesus is trying to communicate something to the crowd. I'm not a meal delivery service. I'm not here to feed you physical food. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Y'all, our our deepest, most basic, most fundamental need in life is not food or water or air. Those are fundamental. God created us that way and He provides for us all that we need. Yes, but so much more than that. Jesus is pointing us to a deeper need, a truer need. The reason why you and I can eat and drink and breathe for 90 years and yet never realize why God put us here. No matter how full we get, we're never full. The reason we're here, the most fundamental thing about us, is that we have to be reconciled to God. We're meant to be in relationship, in union with God, to know God. And Jesus is the one come to meet that need. Jesus is the one come to be that bread, to fill us, to satisfy us forever. He is God's provision to save us. He alone is the one who gives us life. Not what he gives from his hand, but what he gives in his very life for us. That's the point Jesus is driving home, but they still won't get it. They won't receive it. And he says as much in verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. I mentioned this earlier. Wouldn't it seem so easy for the crowd to believe? Jesus has cut all the work out of the equation. All the hard uh, labor of, of you know, religious disciplines and devotions. All the things that the people had done day after day, year after year. Jesus says that's not how you become accepted in God's sight. It's simply something you receive. It's by believing in the one whom he has sent. And Jesus is standing right in front of them, giving them that message. Wouldn't that be great? If he was standing right in front of you, telling you where to find life, and yet he says you don't believe. Now John has told us already, we've seen it throughout this gospel, Jesus knows the heart. He's not guessing here about their motives. He knows their motives. In fact, at the end of this chapter, we'll see it in a few weeks, at the end of John 6, John says that Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him, Judas. 
And so for Jesus, y'all, this, this unbelief might shock us. It may confuse us. It didn't shock Jesus or confuse him. This unbelief is not a surprise to him. But I also want to show us that it's not a failure. If we ask the question, okay, Jesus comes to earth to save sinners. Yes. So wouldn't it be true that any sinner who doesn't get saved, who doesn't turn in faith to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, wouldn't that make Jesus a failure in that case? Didn't his mission fall short somehow? If everybody doesn't get saved by his mercy? Jesus gives the answer here. Short answer, no. But Jesus gives the answer here. And y'all, this is, to me, this is one of the most powerful, most wonderful scriptures in all the Bible. Verses 37 through 40. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Immediately after Jesus affirms the crowd's unbelief, he double affirms the certainty of his own saving purpose. Their unbelief does not make him a failure. He doesn't have to try to convince them or lower the bar to make it even easier for them to cross over. Jesus knows who he is and what he's come to do. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is talking about those who come to him in faith and are saved. And notice how he says, the Father gives them to me. Now I'm willing to guess that you may have never thought of yourself in these terms before. That if, you are, if you're a Christian, that means that God the Father has given you as a gift to His Son. The Father has given you as a gift to the Son. That may sound a little strange. That may actually feel a little impersonal when we say it like that, but it's really amazing. And y'all, the closest image that my little mind can, can connect here is the image uh, of a wedding. Uh, Whenever I officiate a wedding, the father of the bride walks her down the aisle. And when they come to the front and stand still and the music stops, one of the first things I say is, who is it that brings this woman to this man? Or who is it that gives this woman to this man? And with tears in his eyes, that father says, her mother and I. And then he takes his daughter's hand and he joins it to her groom's hand to form a new union, something new and something ultimately greater even than the union that they had as father and daughter. It's now husband to wife. Now what's the dad doing there? He's not handing over property. 
There's nothing impersonal about that. In fact, it's the most personal thing a dad can do to entrust his precious daughter to another man to form a new union, a new relationship. And I know that's not a perfect analogy here. But y'all, when we think about the Father giving us to the Son, that's, that's more intimate than we know. There's a, there's a depth of love and relationship there that's really hard for us to fathom. The Father has delighted to give me to the Son to unite me with Jesus. And all the Father gives to Jesus will come to Him. There is not a scenario where those whom God has purposed to save will miss out or be left out or somehow come short. Jesus is not guessing when He talks about salvation. He's not even hoping. He's declaring. And y'all, it gets even better. You notice He says, the one who comes to Me, I will certainly not cast out. If God brings you in by His grace, there is no possibility of you being thrown back. If God delights to bring you in by His grace, there is no possibility of you being thrown back, of God changing His mind about you. This is a promise from the mouth of Jesus. And just to make certain we heard Him right, He says it again in verse 39. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Y'all, if the Father gives you to the Son, you will certainly come to Him in faith, and you can never be lost again. It's the power of Jesus that saves you, and it's the power of Jesus that keeps you. And so something we talk about so frequently, there's nothing you can earn, there's nothing you can achieve, there's nothing you can do to get saved, to have this relationship. It doesn't depend on your work, your effort to be brought in. But y'all, there's a related truth Jesus is also preaching right here. That there's nothing you can do to maintain your salvation once God has brought you in. It's not as if Jesus has gotten us started. He got you through the door, but now it's up to you to find your way to the finish line. Now it's up to you to maintain day by day your standing before God. And when you have a good day, God gives you a gold star. And when you have a bad day, God puts you on a list. And if you string enough bad days together, well, God's going to get rid of you. Because that's what you deserve. Y'all, a lot of us operate that way. And we give a lot of effort, right? Because we think our effort is what gets us into God's good graces. And alternatively, some of us have given up even trying because we're just convinced that God could never love me anyway. If I've lost my salvation, well, I've lost it. If God's changed His mind about me, then that's what I deserve. And so why even try? Jesus speaks against that here. And it's not to say our behavior doesn't matter. We'll talk about behavior as we go through, John. But that's not the concern here. Jesus is not talking about behavior, good or bad. He's talking about His power to save. His power to to preserve. The Father's will is to bring eternal life to sinners. And so that means eternal life begins and ends with Jesus. If it begins with Jesus and it ends with Jesus, what's the middle full of? 
I hope it's full of Jesus. Not just me floundering around trying to make him happy and make him proud. That's not the Christian life. The good work that God began in you, he will see through to completion. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. God will confirm you to the end, the scripture says. Therefore, we fix our hope entirely on the revelation of Jesus Christ that is to come. It's Jesus. And so the focus is on him right where it belongs. If he saves you, he will certainly keep you and he will certainly raise you to new life. That's the last thing we'll see in verse 40. This is the will of the Father. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Y'all, to behold Jesus is to fix our eyes on Him. It's a way of communicating trust and affection. He's the only thing that truly matters to me. He's the only thing that's essential to me. I behold Him and believe in Him, and therefore I have eternal life. Jesus does not say you may, you might. He says you will. And then I myself, Jesus says, will raise you up on the last day. Again, think about how personal this is. This is not a mechanism that God gets you on the right list and one day you'll, you'll end up in some sort of you know, disembodied future happy state. Jesus Himself, face to face, will see to it that you are raised again to a new body, perfect and glorious. A body in many ways just like His. And He's the one to do it. If you are raised up, then imagine the picture of Jesus, the one grabbing you by the hand to raise you. I myself will do it, He says. The gracious work that He began, He will see it through to completion. And so y'all, let me close with a question. How secure are you right now? I'm not asking how secure you feel right now. That changes day by day. How secure are you actually? Are you really? What Jesus has just communicated to us is this. You, if you have trusted Him from the heart, you are just as secure right now as Jesus is. The only way for you to be lost is for Jesus to fail you. The only way for you to be lost is for Jesus to be found a liar or to be found incompetent to see it through. And I can assure you, He is neither. Jesus Christ cannot and will not fail you, and therefore you are as secure as He is. And y'all, this is what it means to receive the bread of life out of heaven and to never hunger again. It's to know Jesus Christ, and to know Him is to know a grace and a hope and a fulfillment and a promise so wonderfully abundant and secure that nothing can ever threaten us again. Nothing can ever stand in the way of Jesus Christ and His bride because we've now been united together. Y'all, every other pursuit in life, you can take my word for it, but you've probably already found out for yourself. Every other pursuit in life, fills momentarily, but then leaves us empty. Everything, even the best of things, are not meant for us to stand upon. Only Jesus Christ is the rock 
of our salvation. And so to receive Him, to know Him, to enjoy the grace of His life given for us, that's a life that is abundant and free and full. And I hope that we know Him to be the bread of life. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that You will enlighten our eyes, open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to know the kind of love that we've just read about. That You, Father, would delight to send Your Son into the world so that He would lay His life down that He might be for us the bread of life, the living water. Lord, a, a gift that we could never earn, a grace that we don't have to achieve. We thank You, Father, that You have so loved us that You demonstrated Your love by sending Him to save us. Father, will you confront us this morning where we have been like the people in John 6, seeking lesser things to fill us for the moment, seeking Jesus perhaps mainly for what he might give us in the moment, but not treasuring him for what he's already given us on the cross and what he's now granted to us eternally. Father, would you make uh, this, this moment for us very clear that you delight to bless us moment by moment. You delight to feed us and clothe us and give us all our necessary things. But far more, you have delighted to give us to your Son so that we might know what it is to have life in his name. Father, let us believe this. Let us behold Jesus and believe in him so that we might have life, so that we might have the kind of security knowing we can never be lost. We will certainly not be cast away. We will be raised up on the last day. Father, if we really believe this, <laughs> then, then make it so that we would live with boldness and courage and joy and gratitude spilling over. What an awesome grace we stand in. Thank you for the bread of life. In Christ's name, amen.